Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you Johnny man? <laughs> World Service members, Monday only listeners, occasional podcasters, audio nerds. All of you, please come in and join us on today's Second Captain's Football Podcast. Owen here with Ken and Murph. Hi, guys. Hi, Owen. Hello, Hello, Owen. A good few of the Premier League's superstars. Did their thing for us over the weekend. More goals for Mo Salah, Harry Kane, a bunch of them for Sergio Aguero. Kevin De Bruyne produced his usual array of sexy assists. But it was a less heralded player who caught my eye. John Joe Shelby, the king of the golf. The king of the golf course. <laughs> king of the golf course. I had any excuse to play that game. And king of the midfield yesterday for Newcastle against Manchester United. He was like the... The um, the English Kevin De Bruyne, yeah, mixed with the English Roy Keane. That was amazing. Wasn't yeah, it? he was snapping at the tackles. He was distributing the ball brilliantly, often in the same move. He'd win a tackle and then whip a forty yarder out to the other yeah. wings. He was doing that sort of thing of of, of De Bruyne style, driven, um, swerving passes. You know, yeah. forty yard passes. Um, just a, a brilliant selection of, of passes. I mean, not just... Um, I mean, he was doing lots of little short ones, little chips over guys to teammates in good positions. Speaking of chips, there was a moment in the second half when there was a 50-50 between Juan Mata and John Joe Shelby. I know who my money is on there. Mm-hmm. Mata did what a luxury player... Luxury player is unfair. What a, what a skill-based player like Mata is going to do. And half-heartedly went for the ball, giving... Shelby the op- option to just chip it over his leg. You know that little chip yeah. that players do? And when they're as good as players in the Premier League, that chip lands essentially exactly where they want it, so they've got the next touch. The next touch was amazing because he just took control of the ball and another Manchester United player, this was all in a very short, a very small space, another Man United player came steaming in and Shelby just whacked the ball off him and won a throw. Yeah, <laughs> that was just towards, that? towards the end. Towards the, the end, yeah, 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 when they're looking for to earn a bit of time and all that kind of thing. So yeah, he was amazing. Is he, Why is John Joe Shelby playing at Newcastle and not at 
because Real Owen, Madrid because Owen, he's an inconsistent player who doesn't play that well every game. Consistency is kind of important. I mean, John Joe Shelby did play for Liverpool uh, for for. I mean, he was he was bought by them when he was like nineteen, eighteen, maybe. Um, you know, so I mean, he he sort of went straight to the top. You know, as a as a young player, and then uh, was busted back down a couple of levels. Um, you know, I mean, the thing is that he's always had ability, but in a way, that's that's kind of what makes him irritating for his managers. Yeah, because a player who can do that and then does some of the things that Shelby does, it's 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 just it becomes much more annoying than a player who doesn't really have a lot of ability, but at least plays to the same mediocre level. Um, <laughs> most weeks, mm. you know. I don't know if you were watching matches today too last night, but um, towards the end, like, yeah. yeah, someone threw a tweet in. Do we think John Joe Shelby can go to the World Cup? <laughs> Why not? Yeah, and, uh, I mean, well, he should. Yeah, the, well, the answer to that question was, I think, well, from Alan Shearer and Phil Neville was, I think, nearly a tacit admission that even though English football may be at a little bit of a low ebb at the moment, we are going to have to pick a player for the World Cup on more than one game. We're going to need a slightly longer, say, like 10 games. And even then, really, is like 10 games, a well-timed 10-game span of playing well. Surely that's not enough to get into a World Cup squad if England are as good as maybe they think they are. It is their weakest position. Yeah. So, um, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later with Jonathan Wilson, about mm. Jack Wilshere in particular. I know you've... You've got a little be, Jack. Yeah, you've got some opinions on Jack Wilshire. We he brought on Wilshire at half time. Wilshire. Well, that, those are the opinions. You don't really need any further conversation. Let's get into the report on sport. Well, that was from uh, that was from Euro 2016, I think, right? Wilshire. I mean, I don't having not played all season. Yeah, he hadn't, he hadn't played all season, so he shouldn't win there. I mean, if they, you know, if they played, they basically picked a player on zero games for the last tournament so I don't see why Shelby couldn't get in on the basis of what he did against Man United yesterday I'll tell you he would be going to the World Cup if he was English Conor Huron mm. <laughs> I mean maybe not but he would at least be in the running after uh, yesterday's or the weekend's screamer um, uh, against uh, Birmingham in the the Broom Derby uh, great goal by Huron I don't know if you've seen it um, oh, takes it on the chest. Yeah, volleys it over the goalkeeper, looping volley. Was it slightly mishit? Did that perhaps contribute to this so-so sweet arc of the ball over the goalkeeper and yet under the crossbar in what looked like the ball hit at that pace? Not really far enough for God it to come down like that. God damn you for saying that, Ken. God damn A little you. bit. It's kind of like something we, we specialise in, what with Johnny Sexton's mishit drop goal <laughs> uh, the, other, <laughs> the other weekend. Just that slightly not true... Ninety uh, percent true strike, uh, but eighth goal of the season for him. The ball bounced before Connor Hearn struck it. By the way, so I'm just look. Uh, I'm not going to get into it. Yeah. You called it a volley. We'll just leave it. If um, I tell you what, Owen, if Jack Grealish was still Irish, things would be looking good for us because uh, he was sensational. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the last time I heard, he had reverted to being English. It's been a while since we've had a team dominated by Aston Villa players. I enjoyed those days. Mm, early 90s, we yeah. were talking about Ray Hatton, Paul McGraw, and Steve Thornton yeah. at the time. Andy Townsend. <laughs> yeah, we really did have a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Aston Villa. So, uh, yeah, they, they um, looks very much as though they're going to be back in Premier League. And that was a big win for them and a great goal for her. And anyway, 
So what was happening in the actual Premier League? You mentioned uh, the English De Bruyne and Newcastle's amazing victory against Manchester United. And I'll tell you who was most blown away by it, Owen, who was almost in tears of emotion watching Newcastle get this victory over um, over United, who've, who've given them some torrid afternoons down the years, was Jose Mourinho. Mourinho the magnanimous. Um <laughs> He, uh, he 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 never has won at St James's Park in now seven attempts, uh, and he was talking a lot about Bobby Robson, Mr. the home of Mr. Robson, and uh, talking with you know what you might mistake for genuine admiration for Newcastle's pluck, spirit, um, their courage, their strength, their indefatigability. Um, they came here today to fight for a point. This is what Maria said in his press conference. But they found themselves in the position of leading 1-0. And in that moment, they went over all the limits. They had the effort and the sacrifice that any manager likes to see in his team. Uh, and, he, and he said, you know, they must have an amazing feeling. When you've given everything, when you give what you have and more than what you have, then, and, and you know, that's, that's the most amazing feeling. Um... So, yeah, I mean, a very, very generous assessment, uncharacteristically generous assessment from Mourinho, you could, uh, you could say, um, although an inaccurate assessment. Um, when he says that, that Newcastle came here today to fight for a point, that's not true. Um, I mean, we saw what happens when Newcastle play for a point because they played Manchester City twice recently and adopted tactics so negative that Rafael Benitez was still having to... Uh, you know, make excuses for them or defend them uh, two days before this match, the the the, the Manchester United match. And the, the, I think I think the second City game is the twenty first of January. The first one was was it Stevens's day, and in both of those games, you saw what happens when Newcastle United under Rafael Benitez want to keep a clean sheet and don't care what else happens in the game. They play five at the back, they play five in midfield, and nobody runs forward. Nobody. Uh, that is not what happened in either of their games against Manchester United. Um, we saw they won the game yesterday, but there was there was efforts to attack throughout the game. You know, there was. It, I mean, they are defending from us. Game United had two thirds of the ball. City had eighty percent of the ball against Newcastle. United had like two thirds, so there was still mainly defending. But when they got the ball, they ran forward. This was the difference because they think Manchester United, unlike Manchester City can be got at you can you can go for them and you don't really need to worry too much because they're not going to tear you up on the counter-attack in quite the same way as Manchester City are um so they're not getting the same respect this was true also of the previous game between Newcastle and Man United which which Man United won 4-1 but if you remember that game Newcastle took the lead uh, quite early on at Old Trafford Dwight Gale scored but the notable thing about the goal was there was four or five Newcastle players all pouring into the United box at the same time you know they, so they're not giving them anything like the same respect as they were giving a team with, where, where they really just wanted to fight for a point I mean there was also a penalty that Newcastle should have had um, uh, and, a, and a chance for Shelby which was quite similar to the, to the goal um, Shelby had this chance in the first half but De Gea made a good save. So, um, you just had to, even if you only watched the first 10 minutes and switched off, <laughs> you would have known that they weren't settling for a point because they started the game really well. Then Manchester United took over the first half really 
after a period and started playing, Sanchez in particular started playing some great stuff. Mm. But there was obviously an intent there, uh, which, which drifted away a little bit, I felt, as the half went on. But second half, it was just a 50-50 kind of a game. Like, it didn't look like one team was particularly that much better. Once Man United went behind, they got a bit desperate and forced a few chances, but they weren't exactly ripping it up before that. No, I mean, there was chances for Martial. You know, Martial had three, could have scored I've a hat-trick. Met, yeah, yeah. Well, I say he could have scored a hat-trick, but in fact, two of his chances were the same, you know, attack. He he shot from the six-yard line, the ball came straight back to him, and he shot again, and it was blocked again. Then he had a, ch- he had a chance in the first half, uh, coming into the penalty area where he uh, missed the goalkeeper save, but he was coming yeah, in from the right-hand side. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, you mentioned Sanchez playing some good stuff. I mean, he was okay, uh, and he did have a chance to score when he delayed the shot. I think because he thought the defender was already sliding, was going to be in the path of the ball if he shot, looked around, realized actually the defender hadn't got there quite in time, but now he had. <laughs> so that was uh, that was unfortunate from his point of view. Um, but the fact is that that uh, I think Martial generally was quite poor yeah. in the game, and he's playing you know again on the in a position that he's not ever played really before for Manchester and the reason for that is Sanchez if uh, Sanchez comes in and starts playing on the left then Martial's on the right but you know where does he sort of what how his game is not really about playing on the right as a winger get wide you know put in crosses stick it in the mixer no it's it's get into the box and shoot which he can do more effectively from one side so the question is why Sanchez should Necess- is, that, is this necessarily the best way to fit these players together? I mean, the fact is, Martial missed the chances yesterday, and Jose Mourinho doesn't like players who miss chances, you know? Because you get you get the chance, you miss, and then, well, let's try another player. That's that's usually been his uh, his response to missed chances. So It'd be a bit brutal to drop Martial for that, though, considering usually he's a good finisher. No, do you think it would be brutal? I mean, would it would it be surprisingly brutal? Would it would it surprise you? Would Mourinho surprise you with his brutality no. if he was to drop Anthony Marcel after these misses, and they were some big misses? No, but if you're talking about setting standards for finishing, I think actually Marcel is one of the better players in the team, probably oh, yeah. for finishing chances. So it's a, it, you can drop him, sure, but if you're dropping him just for missing chances in one game, I think that's a little bit harsh. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things to, to talk about with the game, obviously. I think when you look at what's happening, um, the, the player who seems to be getting the blame, or or today's, this week's... Um, Pinata, Manchester United Pinata Is? Chris Smalling? Chris Smalling. Yeah. Yeah, Chris Chris Smalling. Um, you saw there was there was some analysis of, of Smalling and, and Jones. Phil Neville was on match of the day and talking about their uh, very poor performance and I mean you know there, there was a few people few people slagging them off I mean Lasselle the the uh, uh, Newcastle captain um, was saying you know they didn't turn up today I mean Phil Jones said we didn't really turn up today but he's allowed to say that about himself you know unless when a player on the opposing team says um they're, when you play Arsenal Man City, you can really see their quality. And if you make one mistake or lack of concentration, a goal will go in. Today, I don't think they were at it from the start of the game. Arsenal or Manchester City are the two teams that he chooses to compare United to unflatteringly. But Smalling was was being criticised by um, Phil Neville for, among other things, and, and he lumped Jones in with this as well. When Manchester United were in possession, the ball went back to David De Gea. They just stood in the centre of the field and didn't move 
each of them to either side of the pitch in order to provide De Gea with passing options. And I thought, but why would they do that when they know that all David De Gea is being told to do is to boot the ball to the other end of the field here? David De Gea played 32 passes in the game and 19 of them were booted into the other half. Now, you could say this is because Jones and Smalling didn't give him an option. Mm. But I think that if that had happened two or three times and that was what was, you know, if they had failed to, to provide that option one time or two times and that was how United were meant to play, then that message would have been conveyed to them. It would have been conveyed. It would have been conveyed to them. You may as well criticize Richard Dunn for not taking the ball off Shea Given in the Trapattoni years. Exactly, you and know? I'm glad that you've been the first person to mention Giovanni Trapattoni today. I'm glad that it was you that mentioned Giovanni Trapattoni, and I didn't have to do it. Um, well, have you made this comparison in your piece? I haven't had a chance to read it. Yet. No, um, not yet. No, I, I don't think. I don't think I did. I, I ran out of words. It was one of those where there was too much to say for the available space. Um, but you know, I, I wouldn't criticize Smalling and Jones necessarily for that. I mean, they knew what they knew to score. They, when they weren't running out to to the sideline, it was because why waste the energy of running twenty meters for a ball that you know is not going to come? You know, just you know, catch a breather and watch the ball go over your head. Um, obviously, the big the the big thing here. I mean, I know that that that, that Smalling is getting a lot of the criticism. He did have a terrible game. I mean, he gave away what should have been a penalty. He gave away the free kick from which Newcastle scored um, by diving. <laughs> But something else happened on that goal that, that Mourinho made uh, reference to. Um, Mourinho said, you know, I can remember without even seeing the television, just from my memory, clearly as anything, I can remember that ball coming in and two of our players standing there looking at the Newcastle player who jumped and they just stayed on the floor. And the two players were in the manual manager on Paul Pogba. Pogba, who was substituted immediately after the goal. Uh, it looked to me as though they maybe thought they were going to run into each other as though they left it. They, they both left it to each other rather than, you know, the, what possibly the possibly could have been a painful collision if both had gone for the ball, but maybe Newcastle wouldn't have scored either. And Mourinho took Pogba off immediately after that. Now, this is a big deal. This really is. And, and I know you can say, well, it's not as managers entitled to take off players. You do not take off a player like Pogba and expect that everything is going to be Fine, and this is the second time it's happened in in like less than two weeks. It hadn't happened at, at all before then, in terms of Pogba had been taken off, but only when they're already coasting in a game, or you know, it's a bit of a it's a standing ovation or a or a little bit of a rest for you. Well done in your game, as opposed to the uh, losing the the position of being losing, where they're trying to get back into the game. That's the way it was against Tottenham and against Newcastle. Didn't he have a knock though? No, not according to his manager. Yeah. I mean, maybe seemed to be the suggestion. Yeah, that no, seems to be the suggestion, lot. but not a repeat Owen, from Jose Mourinho. He said, "No, he's fine." So, uh, would it be more damaging to Mourinho to play Pogba, even though he picked up a little bit of a knock in the warm up, than it would be the way that he's gone about it to say that there was no injury and that he took him off for tactical reasons? I'm kind of, I'm kind of interested by that because both of those options suggest that there is a bit of a problem there. There's Either, clearly, there's yeah. obviously a problem. There's obviously a problem because you you just don't, this is just not done. You know, you don't take off a guy who thinks he's the best player in the team twice in a week and a half and expect that to be okay. I mean, I found it quite, I mean, I, now, Poppy played badly. He's playing bad. I mean, he played badly like a, like a few of the Manchester United players. But... <laughs> 
Since when is substituting a player the way to help a player get through a crisis of form? Since when is that? I don't really. I don't. I well, don't surely understand. the idea of substituting a player is not to help the player, but to help the team win the game. Yeah. I mean, I know that there's obviously a different set of rules for players that you've signed for 100 million quid or whatever. But the idea of a substitution is, well, you're not doing it, so I'm going to put someone in who can do it. Um, I mean, and you know, and your job is not to manage Paul Pogba, but to manage Manchester United. And who was the player that he brought on, Michael Carrick? I mean, he actually took off his entire midfield in the game. The Matic, Pogba and Lingard all got substituted. So in, in a sense, it was a total wipeout for Shelby. He completely <laughs> conquered the Manchester United midfield. Um, but, you know, two substitutions in three games for Pogba. Both of these substitutions have happened since Mourinho signed his uh, contract extension. Uh, he's the powerful figure at the club now. I mean, who is the powerful figure at Manchester United? This is, we, we all, it, used, it was a very simple question in the past. Everybody knew who was the authority figure at Manchester United. But now it's a little bit more diffuse. You know, there's a few things going on. The club has got, you know, a, 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 world, a world leading commercial department. Um, it's got a, a relatively quite small football department it has owners in the united states it has an executive chairman who seems to be content to let the manager take most of the you know the sort of the um to, to be the front man but is he really necessarily running everything quite as much as he would like does he control who comes in and out of the club to quite the extent that he would like that's harder to say a player like pogba has got enormous influence there because he's like the he he's the key man in the sort of social media strategy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He he is like the um, the guy who gets the who who gets the eyeballs. You know what I mean? So he's he's also got a bit of power and, and obviously a powerful agent as well. So you're saying this is a political power play then rather than football? Well, Mourinho did sign the contract and now he's subbing Pogba off and talking about him. Pfft, in ways which he didn't seem to impress them. Now, I, I, I think that that uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff. There's going to be lots of stuff said about Pogba this week, and there was already Sunday. Graham Soonis had another. Soonis obviously been a long time critic of Pogba. Wrote a piece in the Sunday Times, which was put to Mourinho in the press conference after the game. You know, was talked about on TV. It's like you know a fairly influential piece of Mourinho knew exactly what was being referred to when it was mentioned to him afterwards. He didn't comment on it, but he said things like. He he runs after the ball like a schoolboy in the playground, you know, like cutting, withering enough. Says he, you know, he can't play in midfield too. He's he's he doesn't have the responsibility. He doesn't know how to play the position. All this kind of stuff. I actually think that's probably true. But does that mean so? So given that that is true, like I'm, I mean, I think it's true because Pogba is a player who 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 goes with the momentum of the moves. You know, he kind of follows his instinct to make things happen and if you do that then you're not standing where you were 20 25 uh you know uh, 10 seconds before maybe that's where you needed to be standing to stop the counter-attack that's starting now but you know you can only really do one or the other i mean soon as we're talking about the the football knowledge of joe fagan um who said to him listen graham he he'd come back from an injury and he said listen you're not match fit but just stand still and the ball will come to you and soon as tried this and realized, my God, this actually really works. I just, all I need to do is stand here, and then suddenly I'm running the game. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it would work in today's Premier League, frankly. No, I think you might need to get moving. Plus, you'd be quite easily man-marked. I mean, Matic tries it. 
You know, <laughs> but Matic does it, but somehow the game seems to pass him by. I mean, this is the, this is a kind of weird paradox of it. I, I I happen to agree with Sunis that Pogba is not this type of player, but but that's not to say that he couldn't be a very good player for Manchester United, just not in this role. So why does Mourinho keep playing him in that role? Why do they keep playing a two-man deep? sort of uh, partnership in midfield with Matic and Pogba. Isn't Matic able to do this by himself? And if he's not, what was the point in bringing him in? What is the point in bringing in a defensive midfielder who needs a carer to look after him? What 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 is the point? Well, teams do play with two players in that position. I have done. Real Madrid have done it. Other teams have done it over the years. But Real Madrid haven't done it very often. No, Jose I'm talking, I'm talking back, manager, uh, sure. no, but back in the Xabi Alonso. Who, who did Xabi Alonso play with? There were, there were two sort of Ostensibly, depends. Sometimes Kadira. Pepe it could have been Sami last Yara. No, I'm not. You know, but these are these are players who are pretty versatile, which Matic is supposed to be. Sorry, my point being that I don't think playing two somewhat defensively minded players together there is the end of the world. But Pogba isn't defensively minded, no. so you're not really. You're kind of you know you're fitting a square peg into a round hole there. You have bit. to find a position for Pogba where this lack of responsibility that he shows. In especially in you know the transition moments which Mourinho is obsessed with, is not exposed all the time. You have to. There's otherwise no point in having him. Sell him. I mean, I wonder is that is, is that now the the plan? But what I don't understand is why turn it into what is now obviously a confrontation. I mean, people can pretend. Oh no, it's not. It is. You know, you don't do this. I mean. Benitez could, or, or Mourinho rather, could learn a bit from Benitez because Benitez had the same problem at Liverpool with Steven Gerrard. He had the same problem because you had a similar type of player who had enormous talent, was the most talented player in the team, and yet caused problems continually for a manager who wanted to play 4-2-3-1, the same formation that Mourinho was playing this season, but a player who, while he looked like he should be able to play as a defensive midfielder wasn't. He was he would just run all over the place and then, oh no, I've been caught. He'd take risks all the time. And then some of the times the risks would go wrong. So what did Benitez do? He didn't just punish and substitute Gerard. It was like, oh you failed again, Gerard. You know, an early bath for you. It wasn't like that. It was okay, I'll find a position for you where you can actually play, where we can use what you can do, and I don't have to worry about you abandoning your post, as I know you're going to do 20 times a game, because I've got someone there, like, you know, Sissoko or Machuano, someone who will actually do it. And also, you didn't see him substituting Jared because Jared, like Pogba, more so than Pogba, in fact, was a politically powerful player at the club. He was, you know, the, the idol of the supporters, more so than Pogba now is. I mean, Pogba is a, is a huge star. He's commercially very important. He's an influential player at the club. Make no mistake about this. Gerard, even more so. You know, if, if Benitez had been taking Gerard on, that it maybe wouldn't have gone too well for him. He did substitute him one time in a game for playing like an idiot. If you remember, it was, it's, it's, it's famous because this kind of thing doesn't happen. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a, it's the only time it happened to Gerard, as far as I remember. In a in a game where things were happening, they were playing Everton, mm. uh, and I think they were losing, or they were they were certainly not winning a game. They sort of needed to win uh, at Goodison Park, and Rafa Benitez took off Gerard at Goodison Park. The whole stadium is taunting his you know his failure. Ah, you've been taken off. I mean, Gerard's you know as usual, his head is about to explode, and so on. Um. 
because he was playing, as Benitez said, with too much passion, i.e. like an idiot. So he did do it once. And other he than did that, he did exile him to the right wing for a period as well. But exiled him to the right wing because he, was, he wanted him in the team but didn't want him protecting the defence where he wouldn't protect the defence. That's the point. That's the point I'm trying to make is Pogba should not be playing there for Manchester United. He should not be playing. He should not be playing there. And if you play him there and he plays badly, that's you're getting what you. If you if you were to think about it, this is what you should. This is really what you should expect. I don't understand the the logic. I mean, Mourinho took took him off against Tottenham. He wants to make a point. Fair enough. But why does he have to make the same point a week and a half later? He's picked the same team, playing the same way, and ends up having to make the same again, point, subbing, to, subbing well, off well, no, back Pogba. To, back to Murph's point, he wanted to win the game and Pogba was playing badly. So he takes him off and tries to change things. I don't know if he's, that means he's taking Pogba But has he on. not thought about the reasons why he might have played badly? In, has, has, has he not thought about this? Well, it's just all about writing names on, a, on the sheet and it's like you guys. But Pogba has played well. He has managed to, particularly against teams in the lower half of the league, where you're up against you know inferior opposition. He has played really well from that position because, you know, United don't need two defensive midfielders to beat Newcastle United. I mean, no, that's... so why are they playing two defensive midfielders against Newcastle United? You see, we we've seen all this other stuff about Pogba, you know, this and he's, you know, he, like Sunis's criticism and various other sort of piling on onto this. He's he's just being misused by a coach who doesn't appear to understand what how to put together a team. But Pogba has won games for Manchester United playing in that role. I mean, you know, you can call it def- he's played alongside Nemanja Matic, not doing the defensive part of the role, but being good enough going forward to win games for Manchester United. But what so- is what is the structure of the of this attack? You know, what, they've got Sanchez now, so apparently he's going to play on the left, even though he could play in, in other positions. But for some reason, they want to use him on the left, which means they have to take Martial, who's been playing on the left quite well, and move him over to the other side where he appears to be quite ineffective. Um, they've got Lingard. I, what, what exactly is Lingard at the moment? Is he supposed to be combining with the midfielders behind him or supporting Lukaku? In front? I mean, is he more of a striker or more of a midfielder? I don't really know. But it seems as though... Uh, you know what? I don't see where the, I don't see the logic that's gone into into constructing this unit. All I see is the punishment. All I see is is the substitute board going up and Pogba trudging off and sitting on the on the bench with this uh, grey face of agony. He was miserable looking. Have you ever seen? So now, tell me this: how many? And, and, and people are all like, his 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 photo that the 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 shot of him on the bench looking pig sick is like all over the world and people are like making memes out of it and laughing at it and Pogba obviously is looking at this going well okay and then Pogba is maybe looking around a little bit at the at the at the league and you know you've got Kevin De Bruyne you've, who's just absolutely sensational is Kevin De Bruyne better than Pogba I bet Pogba thinks he probably isn't I bet Pogba thinks I can do everything that guy can do why is it not working out for me you know. Players don't like to blame themselves, and actually, he's got a pretty obvious person to blame. But the way that the way that Mourinho is handling this makes me wonder if he, if I think he may have already decided. I don't think this guy is part of my team. All right, let's move it on. Where do you want to go next? Um, I'll take all the time you need, Ken. We're yeah, here for you. Sorry, you mentioned tra- you mentioned Trapattoni, Owen. Um, it's it's like the it, it does does the midfield not remind you of? Basically, sub in Glenn Whelan for Nemanja Matic and Keith Andrews for Paul Pogba. Is there not a, a certain similarity there in in 
in the way this these two teams are are put together. You know, it just seems as though eventually you've got Paul Pogba who looks a lot like Keith Andrews. Well, I've never saw Glenn Whelan produce a pass like Matic did for Marshall to set him away for that chance in the first half yesterday. That was a, a good pass. It was a good pass. And that was the pairing that was not the most obvious one to start picking holes in, so congratulations to you on that as well, also, I would say. but I mean, I don't know that that's where people would have jumped to first, but I'm glad that you did that. The Arsenal-Tottenham game we were going to talk a bit more about with uh, with Jonathan shortly, uh, Jonathan Wilson, but, um, you know, it was it was obviously a walkover, really, for Tottenham. Uh, they They absolutely blitzed Arsenal out of it. And only won one nil, and could have actually messed it up because Lacazette missed two chances at the end. And I was amazed Arsene Wenger's comment um, about Lacazette, which was, "He's a good goal scorer. He's gone through difficult periods before. He works hard in training, works on his finishing. It can happen. It's a fraction of a second. Maybe the confidence is not at its highest because he's seen a competitor coming in from Aubameyang. Maybe his maybe his confidence is low because we signed Aubameyang. Is that not a?" A crazy thing to say. I mean, they also sold Giroud. It's not just that there's more strikers in the squad than there was. Maybe Aubameyang is a slightly more similar to Lacazette striker. But the idea that a player would be would miss a chance because he's seen he, he's worried now that there's a competitor. I mean, that's just if that's if that is the case, then they just need to to get rid of Lacazette. <laughs> you know, they really do because it, that should not be the response. Of of a of a sort of a top player. That's not not a good mentality for a player. I mean, I imagine like I said, would be embarrassed to hear Wenger say that. A top player who's midway through their first season at the club. It's not as though he's been there for years and is on the wane and sees a new guy coming in. He should yeah. be the Aubameyang. They might have needed to sign Aubameyang if he had maybe. Hold on a second here. I've been here for almost twenty weeks now. You know, when when someone's going to pay me the respect I deserve. Hmm. Mm. He's. I mean, it's. He. You should want to compete. I mean, if anything, the Aubameyang's presence should be making him more determined to not miss these chances. You know, it's like the the competition is there for this place. Maybe that wasn't there before, and this should. I mean, in theory, this should result in in redoubled efforts, not a collapse in confidence. Mm. Well, whatever about that being like the human reaction of Lacazette in this. You know, in this situation, the idea that Arsene Wenger would come out and tell us all that this has been the reaction mm. <laughs> of Lacazette—that's the really damaging bit. I is that say. what is that what Wenger thinks? Is that what, is that what Wenger thinks about competition within a within a squad? That you know, you can't have competition beyond a certain level because the players will become intimidated and and start to worry, and and their confidence levels will drop. I mean, this is this is sport. Like you know, it's supposed to be like that. It's also supposed to be the manager's job to set keep them up those players competing against yeah, each exactly, other, yeah, exactly, and keep those players keen and so on. It's not. It's not like you know affairs of the heart. You know, like Lacazette was married to Arsenal, and now Arsenal have this, have this, are having an affair with Aubameyang. I mean, in that situation, Lacazette could be brokenhearted. That that really could hit his confidence. You know, but it's not like that. It's a sporting competition. Like there is, you have to you have to compete. He's he he's competed pretty hard to get to this point. You know what I mean? Lacazette, from wherever he started out, like as a kid, you know he was had to be the best player in a lot of teams to ultimately get signed for Arsenal. So I don't understand why his confidence would suddenly be dipping because there's another player there now who he has to compete with. I mean, it's just very strange coming from Wenger. 
Um, what else is going on? Oh, we should mention Antonio Conte. Um, we we were speaking about him last week uh, and saying that maybe he was going to get sacked. I mean, he is playing West Brom, and that West Brom are the team that Chelsea typically sacked the manager after playing. Was it uh, Roberto Di Matteo and... Was it Roberto Di Matteo and Andre Villas-Boas were both sacked after playing West Brom? Um, so they are playing them tonight. Uh, what Conte, Conte has given... Conte continues to to greatly amuse me with his comments in this situation where everybody is expecting him to, to be sacked because his players are no longer really performing with the kind of intensity that they did last season when they won the title and that he used to project on the sideline but now he, he's kind of mirroring their slackness with his with his attitude but in the build-up to this game he's talking about you know where things might have gone wrong uh and the problem is that he's literally too good at the job um he says uh i don't know you know could anyone do a better job than you and he's i don't know in my experience, I think I reach the best results possible with the players I have to work with. I'm the type of coach who, if I have a player who's a six, I bring him to an eight. If I have a player who, he means out of ten, by the way, not at positions. If I have a player who's eight, I take him to a ten. I'm this type of coach. My task is to try and improve every single player in every aspect. It's about mentality also. Yes, my task is this. For this, I'm very good. But I think I'm a bit of a disaster to convince the club to buy players. I think in this aspect, I can improve a lot. I have to learn from the other coaches, the other managers in that aspect. I have to speak more with the managers who are very, very, very good at persuading their clubs to spend money and buy top players. <laughs> and someone then, some wag suggests, oh, maybe, maybe you should stop improving, improving your own players so much. Maybe that way they'd buy some players. He goes, oh, yes, you are not the first person to suggest this. Not the first person to tell me this. Uh, Conte then went on to welcome his uh, apparent successor, Luis Enrique, to the club. <laughs> People are. He, Luis Enrique, uh, although Chelsea say they haven't been speaking to anybody um, in Spain, the media was suggesting that Luis Enrique had been contacted but didn't want to take over until the summer because he was kind of enjoying his. Yeah, you know, he just wanted to take a break and recharge and so on. Conte, um, this is brought up with Conte. Yes, yes, I know Luis Enrique. When I was a coach at Juventus, he was Roma's coach. I've spoken with him. We played against each other. He's a really good person. I have great admiration for Luis Enrique. He's a fantastic coach. He reached his targets with Barcelona and also with Roma. You could see a well-organized team. I speak about him very well as a person and a coach. <laughs> so I've never heard that before yeah. in, uh, in English football. Presenting a ringing endorsement for the man who's about to take your job. Yes, uh, yeah. Yes, so it seems. But but there was suggestions, and, and I don't think I've heard this before um, in terms of the journalists bringing this up with Conte in his press conference, because there has been talk for a while that the Chelsea players are getting a bit like... Imagine Conte was your boss. You know, yeah. It would be exhausting. It would be hard on the nerves, hard on the body. Um, do, does everything have to be like this all so the time? Intense. Like, uh, I mean, if you... Uh, if you saw, there was an interview um, PK did with Neymar. Um, it, it was one that PK has some link up with the Players Tribune. You know, he he uh, he's, he interviews like his mates, like Suarez, and he interviewed Neymar, and he's asking Neymar stuff about the World Cup and like, what do you remember about the World Cup? And PK can remember like 
that Tassadi elbowing Luis Enrique and all the blood on the on the white national team shirt of Spain, and that's his first memory of the World Cup. And he was like six at the time, I think, or seven maybe. Um, Neymar is like, uh, I don't know. I mean, he he first of all claims to remember Romario's goal um, against Holland. In 94. In, in 94, when he was two. <laughs> <laughs> so he claims to remember that. But then he says his next memory is of, you know, Ronaldo and, and Rivaldo and Ronaldinho winning the World Cup in, in 2002 when he, was, uh, when he was 10. But at some point, PK, the reason I, I mentioned this is PK asked him, so Neymar, um, you know, do you remember the first time you were called up for the national team? And he goes, yeah, I do, actually. I was, uh, you know, we were in, actually, we'd had a game at Santos the previous night. And then we were in the next day and we were doing well we were doing you know what we usually do after a game and pk's like nothing and they both go ah nothing ah, nada and uh i think this is what players like to do the day after a game i kind of feel as though chelsea players particularly find themselves having to do a lot more sort of calisthenics and whatnot <laughs> than ideally they would like um but you know this is mentioned basically are players getting a bit you know too much of the whip and not enough of the carrot and uh, the whip and carrot <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I think that usually when you work you don't smile says Conte especially if you work hard it's difficult to smile but at the same time you understand that only through work can you reach a fantastic target last season our work allowed us to reach an incredible target it's very difficult to describe my sessions and training for sure when you play every three days it's impossible to work on the physical aspects this season we're not working on this aspect but if I have time to work with the players you start with the whole week you try to start the week with a physical session then in midweek I go to the tactical aspect and prepare the game so it's difficult to smile if you're working um, and if only those Chelsea players are working a little bit harder yeah. maybe who knows maybe Luis Enrique can uh, can get, wipe that smile off their faces uh, when he comes to replace me. By the way, has anyone worked out yet that the best chance to win the league next year, mm -hmm. if you're around fourth, fifth place, if you're in the Spurs, Chelsea territory, Arsenal, is not to qualify for the Champions League? Well, that's what Arsenal thought last season when they didn't qualify for the Champions League and now they're not going to qualify for the Champions League okay, again. It hasn't worked for Arsenal, but it worked for <laughs> Chelsea. Uh, nerdy work for Liverpool under Brendan Rodgers. Tottenham had a nice run at it the year yeah. they lost it to Leicester. Worked, worked for they were Leicester. In the Champions League test. Leicester uh, managed Leicester. successfully managed to yeah. avoid Champions League qualification when yeah. they finished 17th. Or Tottenham were in the Europa League that season until yeah, uh, exactly. until after Christmas when they decided to take yeah. a. They dropped everybody for uh, for the game against Dortmund. I Tank think. the league this year to try to win it next year. That's my advice. Uh, clubs hovering around the top four. That's it for today's report on sport. Hell of a tournament so far. Listen, Luke Jensen, ESPN. Great to talk to you. Glad you're enjoying it. Own, you're amazing. Own, you're amazing. Own, you're amazing. Own, you're amazing. Own, McDevitt. All up in the interweb. Own, McDevitt. Worldwide. The Murphy Mackey for most welcome Irishman of the year goes to Owen McDevitt. Owen, 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 Owen McDevitt. From Ireland's second captain show. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. Second captain. Those guys, like, those guys are like family to me, man. Owen McDevitt. This is Locke. The coolest song I ever heard in my whole life. Owen McDevitt. All of you said I wouldn't make it. Stop talking about Tom Finney. He said I was a loser. This guy is a bit of a turkey. <laughs> All right. They said I was a fucking soccer. Oh, you're amazing. But look at me now. All up in the interweb. Oh, and the debit worldwide.
Owen McDevitt. Owen, you're amazing. Owen, you're amazing. To say, for example, the Barcelona team you worked at, is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Jonathan Wilson, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Good to hear. Pretty good now. Better than Arsenal fans this Monday morning. You you have been writing recently that Arsenal have essentially prettified one end um, of the team, but failed to deal with the basics. And this seemed to be borne out again because Spurs really did a job on them. I, I know it could have there could have been a lot more goals, but in a way, keeping the scoreline narrow and having everybody say, oh, it could have been four or five, <laughs> was probably as satisfying for Spurs fans. Well, yes and no. I mean... Yeah, Spurs did win very, very comfortably. And and I guess it, it sort of, the game fitted two, uh, two patterns that have, have, have been, I think, pretty apparent. One of them quite long-term, which is that Arsenal often collapse in big games. So, um, you know, they could easily have lost that 4 or 5-0. And had they lost 4 or 5-0, we'd have been saying, yet again, Arsenal have played okay for a period of a big match and then suddenly they've had a sort of 20-minute, half-hour period in which they suddenly just capitulate as they did against Bayern, for instance, when they let in the five in the second half. Um, and it could have been that magnitude. Um, but I think this is a slightly worrying sign for Tottenham as well, um, that I think they they have developed this habit of not really finishing teams off. And actually, I, I first sort of thought this, and then I sort of dismissed the thought as being, oh, you've been too harsh there when they beat Liverpool 4-1. And the second half then, when they were 4-1 up, I thought, they've gone really sloppy here. Yeah, they're trying to do too much. They, you know, they, they probably should have won that game, 6-7-1. or seven, one. And they let Liverpool, I mean, not get back into it because Liverpool didn't score, but it could have been nervy the last sort of 10-15 minutes had Liverpool got one back. And you could say the same about the United game, but that 2-0, it was 2-0 going on 4 or 5 nil, and they didn't take their chances. And in this game, you know, one nil up, but they really should have been out of sight and ended up. Um, you know, if Lacazette had scored either of those two, I mean, one very good chance, one half chance late on, and plus the free kick, uh, the Erzl hitting the wall in the last minute. Um, but they were, I mean, they weren't clinging on, but there was a a chance for Arsenal to get back in the game it should never have had. So, I mean, that in the context of a, of a very impressive, very dominant performance, that'd be the slight concern for Spurs that they they didn't quite finish them off as ruthlessly as they probably should have done. Well, what do you think needs to happen there? Because Tottenham currently have, you know, a man who, by popular acclaim, is the, is the most lethal striker in the world at the moment. So so where does the improvement yeah. in ruthlessness need to come <laughs> yes. from? It's not Harry Kane, is it? I go, <laughs> the problem with Tottenham is Harry Kane doesn't score enough goals. <laughs> no, it, it, I mean, I guess it's the, the supporting uh, players. Deli Ali. I think, we, we all know he hasn't quite been as good this season as he has been in previous seasons. And perhaps he's sort of snatching at chances a little bit. I think um, Sun Heung-min, uh, you know, the, 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 the sort of, again, it's sort of a classic sort of shape to, to uh, how he's regarded that I think he spent a long time not getting anything like the credit he deserves. And then once people started to notice how good he is, and he, did he have, I think it was four home games in a row when he scored, everybody suddenly, oh, Sun's massively underrated, he's brilliant. And actually, the truth was always somewhere in between. And there is something about his finishing that isn't quite as slick as a, you know, as a as an absolutely top player would be. Uh, I think Lamella, although he's you know coming back into form, yeah, he missed a couple of chances, and um, that volley chance he had across the face of goal, he maybe could have pulled that back. So, so maybe 
he also perhaps, like Deli Ali, feels he has a bit of a point to prove that he needs a couple of goals just to sort of stop people talking about, you know, in, in his case, the fact he's he's on the way back from a hip injury and is he the player he was. Um, so I, mean, I think there's explanations for it, but but it's it's just sort of been a recurring theme this season. I think Tottenham in certain games haven't haven't quite won games as, as comfortably as they probably should have done on the balance of play. Can I ask you um, whereabouts do you think Jack Wilshire is at at this stage? Because, um, you know, he, he sort of... I saw them speaking about him again on TV. That's why it's like, yeah, well, obviously Jack Wilshire will be... It was Carragher and Neville, I think, saying, obviously Jack Wilshire will be playing for England in the World Cup. I thought, like, really? Is, is, that, is that where England are at now? Like... Um, I was speaking on another podcast. Uh, Go on, Ken. Yeah, I haven't heard about this. Who talking, are you flirting with this time? Talking on the Arsenal, the Arscast. Oh, well, Andrew Mangan, that's all right. Yeah, John Wilson. Is, uh, the, not John Wilson, rather. Jack Wilshire. The subject of Jack Wilshire yeah. came up. And I expressed to you that I thought Jack Wilshire uh, was no longer the same Jack Wilshire. Uh, you know, at, at the beginning, he had this nice little burst of acceleration to get away from players in midfield, which he doesn't have anymore because he's had so many ankle injuries. This prompted a, a deluge of, of uh, angry criticism from Arsenal supporters who reckoned that Jack Wilshere is playing brilliantly. But I have to say, Jonathan, based on the evidence of North London Derby, he wasn't really in the game. You, you know, this is... Uh, I mean, uh, maybe I was watching with a sense of vindication going, well, it seems as though Jack Wilshere's been fairly run over by Eric Dyer there, who I wouldn't consider to be, you know, one of the best midfielders in the world, but he, he's fairly dominated the midfield battle here relative to Wilshere. Um, what do you think of, of where he's at? Was I being too harsh on him? Does he still have, uh, you know, is he still, I think, is, was it Danny Murphy who recently described him as probably the best English, uh, still the best English central midfielder? Uh, I think I think you're right and I think Danny Murphy's right. I think, And I think that's probably why um, there's this desperation for Jack Wilshere to be a great player. That England don't have that sort of player who can sit deep in midfield and control the game. That the players they have there, I mean, Eric Dyer. I think is is fine from a defensive point of view, but his distribution isn't isn't necessarily great. Jordan Henderson runs about a lot, but I think his sort of positional awareness isn't great. Um, so Wilshire, and I think actually in a sense the the, the the loss of that burst of acceleration, I think that clarifies our vision of what he is. That he's not that sort of um, linking midfielder that, that he used to be. He's got to play as the, the deep lying one because he he can't really get forward. Um, and, and you know there were times when Roy Hodgson played him there when he looked decent, and it's a it's a rolling. Then I think it, yeah, it's it's really the the position where they where they have the biggest dearth, the greatest dearth, is in that sort of controlling. Basically, we need Michael Carrick as he was ten years ago, um, and maybe Wilsh is the closest thing to it. But I would agree with you on Saturday. I thought he was peripheral, and I think the sort of willingness to. To, to welcome Wilshire back after his injury and to, and to sort of hail him as being, oh yeah, he's he, he's back to the player he was. It's 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 very premature, and I think that's because of this desperation that England, England need him, and I think Arsenal need him. And you know, if, if Arsenal fans, the deluge you you received after after saying that, no, I say deluge. I, I, I mean, I, I, I suggest it's probably because Arsenal fans, you've forgotten what a good something midfielder looks like. They haven't had one since Patrick Vieira or, or Gilberto Silva, to be fair. But you know, it's ten years since they had a real dominant presence in that role. And the fact he's better than Granite Xhaka means that people sort of think, "Oh, he's great." Well, he's okay, and you know his his, his recovery, I think, still has a way to run. Say that again. His recovery has a way. It to has run. a way to run. Yeah. Uh, is it going to get there though? Well, maybe. I mean, if if he can stay fit, but that's always been the problem. If if he can be disciplined off the field as well, which is, is at times been an issue. 
Um, I, mean, I think there have been flashes over the last sort of six weeks, two months. Mm. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to be too down on him. I think he's done pretty much as well as you could hope for a player to do coming back from the length of time he's had out. So I think there's very promising signs. But I don't think we can say he's there yet. And I would, I would agree with Ken. That I th- but, you know, he was, he was not a central presence on, on Saturday. Pochettino, after the game, got a little bit snippy with the media because they were asking about Alder Vireweld and why I can't pronounce his name and also why he wasn't in the squad. Uh, it seemed like a reasonable question as to why Alder Vireweld was not in the squad. But is this a common theme? Do you see, Jonathan, that there's more of a combative relationship between clubs and the media in uh, at the moment? Yeah, I think there is. I think there's... Um... Yeah, there's a whole wider picture of the role of journalism and and uh, the, the sort of failure to hold um, liars to account and the, um, the the very partisan nature of, of the media at the moment. But I, the, the, the what happened with Pochettino and Alderweireld, I, I thought, was extraordinary because yeah, the consequence of that was everybody suddenly thought. I mean, I don't know if if the person asking the question knew there was something up um, because it, it, you would. The answer I was sort of expecting then was, oh well, you know, he's just come back. He played the whole game against Newport, so we, you know, we, we didn't want to didn't want to risk him here. You know, it, it's going to take a while. He's been out for three months or whatever it is with with his hamstring problem. Uh, so you know, baby steps. Uh, we got in, the, the squad's deep enough. We don't have to chuck him back in. And instead, that Pochettino reaction made everybody go, well, "Hang on, what, what's going on here? There is a story." Now, there's a little part of me thinks. Pochettino is so good with the media and so good at playing the media. Did he want to shine a light on that? Is he playing some deeper game here? Um, but but yeah, it, it, the the wider point you're making about this, you know, the 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 friction that between clubs and the media, I think it has got worse. And and, and Mourinho's constant sort of, and it always comes back to Jason Mourinho and his questions about uh, football and the media. But his sort of. Um, constant complaints over the last sort of year 18 months about the media and how he's perceived in the media and how he doesn't get um doesn't get credit he deserves in the media that he you know he deserves some kind of medal for not being a total idiot on the touchline for i don't know a week or how long he's, he hasn't been an idiot on the touchline for um yeah that that's all part of that same same program it is interesting though that the the Jose Mourinho's club uh, is maybe leading the way on this because it's it's been a few years now that Manchester United have displayed what, to my mind, was at first a bizarre obsession with their own social media followers. Like they would go on about, we've got X million followers on Facebook, we've got Y million followers on Instagram. You know, we've got like, we've got nearly as many followers as Vin Diesel, and <laughs> and it, it 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 always it seemed the first time I heard them saying this, like it was Richard Arnold. Uh, who's their kind of number two um, uh, official? Um, when was that? Maybe three years ago. Twenty fourteen, I think. Right, Shane. So he, I, I thought this is this is stupid, but I'm beginning to kind of realise. I think what was what was going on all the time is just that it maybe it should have been obvious at the time. But what Manchester United is doing is positioning itself as a as a media company. I mean. Arnold did sort of say explicitly, we're the biggest TV show in the world. But it turns out that they also want to be like a distributor of journalism about themselves. Like that that they are, they now see themselves as the primary media. Manchester United is the primary media outlet dealing with Manchester United. It's we, We've got to the situation where they now are 
uh, see themselves as being in competition, or see the media rather as being in competition with them for the attention of followers. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's a there's a couple of things there. I mean, I think um, I, th- I mean it may be coincidence, but I suspect it's not that that, that focus on um, social media followers uh, it, it coincides with I think a shift in the boardroom away from, for want of a better term, football men like Bobby Charlton towards more. I mean, I, I think uh, there's, a, there's a much greater American influence in the board now. It's much more business focused. And that, you know, what are United good at now? It's, and it's not it's not necessarily playing football. They're quite good at playing football, but what they're really good at is getting deals for you know uh, 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 to be the you know the official engine oil of Manchester United or to be the Manchester United's official noodle partner in South Korea or whatever. That's what they're great at. Mm. And even though their results on the pitch have over the last sort of three or four years have not been great, they have now surpassed Real Madrid as being the you know the, the, the biggest club by by revenue in the world. So the business side of a club. Is going very well, and I guess the you know the social media following is both a reflection of that and and a reason for that. Um, but I'm always struck when when people talk about clubs being like media companies when when they want to be both the the content and the message. Um, and I, I can't think which Real Madrid director was he said it, but it was definitely a Real Madrid director, probably four or five years ago, said that Real Madrid's model is Disney. That they see themselves as being like Disney. They want to, you know, own the rights to the content, and they want to then produce the content. And you know, I, I think United are, are, are following a, a similar model. Um, and, and you know, plus um, they're, they're now, and, and you know, they're not the only club uh, like this. But you know, the, the big clubs now are powerful enough that the relationship with the media has, has shifted. Whereas mm. even probably twenty years ago, thirty years ago. The clubs needed the media to promote their product. You know, they needed their club to be in the newspapers. They needed people to to read the match reports, to read the interviews, to generate interest, to sell the tickets. Yeah. Well, now it's the other way around. The media is beholden to them. That they they need these little crumbs of, of interviews and quotes uh, that are dripped. Um, and the fact that they have their own websites and their own TV channels means that they they can pump out a load of that stuff that they know will be will be friendly. Yeah, like the only media that I think they want to deal with increasingly are the ones that are paying for access, you know, TV companies to pay for the rights uh, and, and so on and so forth. Um, it is becoming more common about sport. I mean, the, you know, there's this whole situation here at the moment where the Irish rugby team is not talking to their print media um, because they say they're unhappy about this and that. I mean, they'll obviously do all the media stuff they get paid to do. Um, fair enough. Uh, I've, I've, journalists have said to me that it's more, getting more difficult to get interviews with players in, in the Premier League because the clubs want to keep the players for their own content. You know, like they want to get, they want to dress Alex Oxford Chamberlain up in, in like a disguise and have him go around and people tell him that he's no good. Um, yeah, the interesting thing about this. Well, one of the interesting things about it is that loads of fans are totally approving. Oh, of this. bring it on! Is, they, what is what a lot of people are saying. Like when when journalists were complaining about the rugby thing the other day, there was just I'd say probably a, a majority of fans were going, "Yeah, you know, fake news media. You're the worst, most dishonest people in the world, and and this is all a good development." Yeah, which is terrifying, frankly. Um, Ter- terrifying. I mean, do you mean when you well, say terrifying? Do you mean have... terrifying for you as a journalist, or terrifying for us as a civilization? Oh, it doesn't bother me as a journalist. I'm too lazy to do interviews anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I sit and pontificate from a distance. I don't need to talk to anybody. <laughs> um, An access-free but... model. <laughs> yeah. Of well, I mean, and, and this is honest, the future. Um, yeah, 
Um, you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm being slightly facetious there, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's only slightly because it's such a hassle to kind of get interviews. So you kind of get to the point of going, oh, you know, do I really need to do this? And I, I, you know, one of the ways that I'm the, personally I compensate for that is writing history because old players love to talk because old people love to talk because people paying them attention is kind of nice. <laughs> and they come from a world before kind of all this thing was very controlled. So, yeah, my Argentina book, easiest job in the world to turn up in Argentina, find an old footballer and say, I'll buy you coffee. Will you talk to me for two hours about the Libertadores in 1962? They're desperate to do that. Whereas, you know, a player now kind of, you know, you'd never get five minutes on it. But um, what, that wasn't the question. The question of, I, the I question of, of supporters. Question. I, think, I think this yeah. is kind of relevant. And I, I think it's very telling that... The England and Nigeria kit launches on Wednesday uh, with Nike, uh, which for some reason I don't understand. I was invited to through the work of Eva Sports Illustrated, but there wasn't wasn't a single um, British newspaper journalist there. The thing was full of, of I don't know YouTubers and kind of people I didn't recognise with cameras, and that suggests to me that Nike think. I mean, Nike are making a decision entirely commercially there, right? You know, that, that's not Nike kind of thinking. Oh, you know the I don't know. The, the the Sun wrote a nasty thing about Paul Pogba last week, so we're not gonna yeah. we're not gonna give him access. But that's a it's a nakedly commercial decision, and they think there's no point inviting the newspapers. And that I think is a uh, an interesting thing. The question was about why is it terrifying? Yeah. It's terrifying because if people can't realise or don't understand that an organisation putting out its own message is going to be less close to the truth, is going to be more biased than the ravening pack of journalists, then the, you know, the, the, our you know, faith in the institution of journalism has eroded to a point that, that is, is frightening. Yeah. And, and it might be fine if all you're doing is, I don't know, talking about the, the next Six Nations game or the next Champions League game, and it's a, you know, a very soft preview. But what happens if, uh, for instance, there's um, a sexual abuse allegation or a drug-taking allegation or... Um, yeah, corruption within the club that money's been siphoned off you, you, you need an independent I mean obviously you need an independent press and media then to investigate that and to bring it to light because obviously the you know as, you know, as we saw with, with, with the case of Sondland and Adam Johnson the club's, rea- the club's sort of instinctive reaction to it is to is to cover it up and hope it goes away yeah I mean the problem I guess with all the like say the influencers at the Nike launch is that they uh, don't have any um, commercial independence in the sense that they need they sort of it's like a um, if you the, you're, if you're selected for the specific uh, purpose that you can spread a positive message about a brand then it's <laughs> you know what I mean like yeah yeah and yeah. also how many of those people have any kind of um, grounding in, in media law or media ethics um I, you know, I, I've, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to, to speak positively of the British press at the moment, given yeah. you know, the way even the Telegraph is behaving at the moment. But at least there's some sort of semblance of a belief that the press is there to, 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 to do a job, a, you know, a neutral job um, of informing, of, of uncovering. Uh, I mean, obviously, a Nike launch is kind of irrelevant, but... Yeah. Um, you know, of uncovering corruption, of kind of righting wrongs. At least there's some sort of still some kind of romantic core there, however blighted that's become. But if you, you know, I, I'm, I'm 
doubt that kind of somebody who's famous for playing uh, FIFA on on uh, on YouTube is has got that same moral sense. Well, uh, they can, though, get a lot of people to watch them on YouTube when they engage in a white-collar boxing match, um, which you may have seen uh, last weekend. Or, uh, or walk past suicide victims in the wood. Or... Yeah, but I got a lot of views as well, um, I guess. But, the, I mean, how do you think journalists are, are adapting? The, the, I mean, what do you think the function of, of the sports media is going to be if every team is its own little media company? I don't mean necessarily football, though. Maybe mainly football, is, if it is the biggest sport. It seems to me in football that some journalists um, are adapting to this new reality by becoming kind of quasi-official club outlets. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you go two ways, don't you? You kind of, um, you either get your, your contact, be that a club or, or a, a manager uh, or a player, um, or an agent, and you you basically work with them to to push their message, or you do the opposite and just sort of step back and do the sort of sneery sniping from the sidelines things that I've got away with for ten years. All right, Jonathan Wilson, lovely stuff. Thanks, Emil. Cheers, thanks. Just a crying big baby. But you cannot call it a player a baby. What? and we never said they are baby. It's just a crying big baby and you cannot call a player a baby. Alderweireld. 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 Have I got it close? Almost as bad as... I can't say it. You know the Belgian player who plays for Manchester United? Tall Rhymes guy. with Delaney. Fellaini. Fellaini. Delaney. Fellaini. Delaney. Fellaini. I really picked a bad profession for somebody who doesn't seem to be able to mm. pronounce surnames. Can I, some constructive <laughs> criticism Rino, Rino says Fellaini, doesn't he? I don't know. I'm about to Does be he? critiqued here, constructively going. No, no. Well, I mean, it's 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 just bullshit. On, don't worry. But you have to bullshit these names with more conviction. You know, you know. sometimes I, I hear you try, really trying to get names right. And that in itself means... You know, if I can hear you yeah. trying, then you're in trouble. A friend of mine listened to one of my first ever radio sports bulletins oh, many years ago. Oh, no. And I was in the middle of the, you know, Wimbledon second round results or whatever. Yeah. And I just stopped in the middle of it and said, oh, these goddamn Russian tennis players. Yeah, yeah. yeah can't, Genny, can't pronounce them. Yeah, Genny Kovalnikov. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. Vin Diesel versus Manchester United on social media. Twitter. Vin Diesel. See, tw- Twitter's not going to be Vin Diesel's game, really. No. 182,000 followers, that's all. Manchester United, 17.3 million. Mm-hmm. Facebook, Vin Diesel, just over 100 million, million likes. Yeah. Manchester United, 73 million. That's hilarious. Instagram, Vin Diesel, 46.9 million followers, only following 35. That's, that's sharp stuff. That's some ratio, all right. Yeah. yeah. Man United, 20.8 million followers. So Vin Diesel, where it counts for him, 
considering his fan base, I think. How is he so... Manchester United why, why, why is he so fascinating to so many tens of millions of people? I don't understand. What I is it that know. he... What's he got like? What's, what's, what is it that sets Vin Diesel apart? Lifestyle of the rich and famous, uh, Ken. I don't know what the, the attraction is necessarily with, with Vin. I'm sure he's a very nice man. Um, maybe he does... Like, he's uh, obviously an extremely well-built gentleman. So maybe he posts a lot of motivational... That seems to be very big on Facebook at the moment. You know, go past the max, all that sort of stuff. Actually, you know? Man United probably do a bit of that as well. I mean, they've they've got like a collection of some of the world's you know most famous athletes yeah. to to, uh, to pose up. Yeah, I don't know. They, I mean, they gave they handed over control of their Instagram account to Jesse Lingard there a couple of weeks ago, and that didn't go well. I can tell you. So <laughs> maybe they've been sufficiently stung by that to not do that for a while. Champions League knockout matches start tomorrow. Man City, Spurs, Liverpool all playing this week. And there's the small matter, Real Madrid versus Paris Saint-Germain to keep us going. You'll be hearing plenty of those uh, on those games, I should say, during the week. But only if you're signed up to the World Service. There'll be a Champions League podcast on Thursday, most likely. Well, it will be Thursday, I'd say. Yeah, we have a midweek it football podcast. It will be Thursday as well. Champions League, Real Madrid, PSG is uh, happening this week. Yep, we have a midweek football podcast every week on the World Service. For those of you who aren't signed up yet, secondcaptains.com is the place to do it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Owen. And thanks for listening. We're going to play out our show today. In fact, both shows today with a tribute to the late Liam Miller. I'm sure you've been reading a lot of the tributes to the X-Man United Celtic and Cork City midfielder over the weekend. He's died aged just 36. So we send our condolences to all Liam Miller's friends and family. And this is his incredible goal for Ireland against Sweden in 2006 at Lansdowne Road. Here's Miller. Good break this for Ireland. as good as it gets absolutely fantastic play well within his range well within his capabilities he just wanted the stage to show the world what he can do and boy did he he's not going to shoot there is he and when he does absolutely thrilled from that's a great moment for this man first on the scene a couple of years ago has dreamt probably of having chances like this and now in a new era well he's announced that he's ready for it marvellous marvellous strike <laughs> I know you're lonely deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.